Hello out there, Michael Tinkser here. Coming Back Stronger is a special edition podcast series focusing on the way food and drinks businesses are bouncing back as the world slowly starts to reopen from COVID-19. We will especially be sharing great stories on how progressive leaders are bouncing back from the pandemic by utilizing the power of technology and delivery. By listening into these conversations in the coming period, you'll be able to pick up some great stories, insights and facts, as well as best practice from industry experts, independent operators to national chains who all are setting a new standard for how to operate in the new normal. Vita Mojo and Hospitality Maverick joins forces on this project due to we have a shared belief on how tech plays a massive role in building companies that's good for people, communities and the planet. In this episode, I talk with Jas Abdullah, the CEO and founder of Urban Hospitality, a consultancy business that's been focusing on delivering dark kitchen projects over the last couple of years. Jas and I talk about the rise of dark kitchen and delivery, as well as the impact on the restaurant industry pre and post pandemic. We also talk about in detail how you set up and built an outstanding dark kitchen brand and operation and how the market will move the next 12 to 18 months. Jazz also gives some stellar advice to operators at the end of the interview, so tune in and enjoy. Welcome to the Coming Back Stronger podcast. We're almost in the middle of June, and there's a lot of conversation going on about... uh, when are we going to open? There's been a couple of days thrown recently here in the UK, the 22nd of June or the 4th of July. And we have been on a tremendous journey and there's a long journey ahead of us as well. And for this episode, we have invited a good friend of mine, colleague, and also an extremely expert in dark kitchen and delivery and actually been on that journey both here in the UK, but also in Dubai. So welcome to the, the podcast. Yes, Abdullah. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm very well. And yourself? I'm okay. Not too bad at all. Just uh, weathering the madness and the storm that we're currently uh, experiencing here in the UK and I guess internationally. So yes, uh, all well. Thank you for asking. And uh, I'm very excited that we're going to have this conversation today because we have like talked about, you know, delivery, dark kitchen, the industry for years now where we meet up for a coffee or we're doing projects together. And it's interesting, some of the things has actually come to fruition as things we didn't actually wish for the industry came in just a fast pace. It almost couldn't cope with it. But we'll come back to that in a second. But before we jump into that, if people should have an idea about who you are and what you've been up to and why you actually ended up working with dark kitchens and uh, delivery businesses, could you just give you a quick elevator pitch about who you are? what you've been up to and a bit of your experience as well would probably be appropriate. Sure, absolutely, Michael. So um, uh, I'm uh, Yaz Abdullah. I'm the founder of Urban uh, Hospitality Group. Um, We specialize in uh, bespoke projects for our clients, predominantly working in the UK, Europe and the Middle East. Um, We've done projects pretty much uh, covering uh, everything from casual dining restaurants to grab and go uh, delivery and also uh, up to uh, working with Michelin star chefs. Um, 
I've been in the industry 25 years, and um, as with most of us, we um, land with our feet down, <laughs> and uh, we just start from the bottom and work our way up. So yeah, it's, it's something which uh, gets me out of bed, and I wouldn't do anything else. Um, kitchens um, has been something which, or certainly dark kitchens, what we're talking about today has uh, been involved in for the past I would say about a good two years. Um, and I could actually see uh, the trend uh, evolving, um, leaning towards uh, dark kitchens or virtual uh, kitchens as, as they're commonly known. Uh, the aggregators, of course, your uh, standard operators, uh, the big boys, the big three, as I like to call them, Just Eat, Uber Eats and Deliveroo, um, they are... Uh, very, they're happy, very pivotal in, in its uh, acceleration over the years. I've been working with um, your main high street operators um, uh, in, in the UK and, and across Europe on helping them enter the world of uh, dark kitchens. Um, and certainly over the past sort of 12 months, I've been quite involved in uh, virtual kitchens, which which essentially is uh, brands that have been created specifically for um, uh, operations in um, dark kitchens and then get expedited to your local customers. And uh, one of those operators, quite a big operator in, in uh, Germany and Austria, um, and there was a food tech company and, and pretty much involved with those guys. And certainly in the first quarter of this year, uh, we've been approached by a couple of operators currently working on projects to do with uh, dark kitchens and delivery. And of course, the pandemic has naturally shifted that uh, attention to dark kitchens as uh, as expected with a lot of the population uh, staying at home and uh, resorting to uh, delivered food. The pandemic, as you mentioned, have changed a lot of things. And uh, we, if we just should set the scene and how you see this has, uh, you know, impacted the industry and especially the work around what you do uh, and where, where where are you seeing it? Maybe it's going in the coming period because there's a lot of, you know, you know, I would call it horrible news at the moment. Every day you open your inbox, you almost think that's people are gonna that's people here that are losing jobs within the next couple of weeks. With the uh, the number of announcement of administration restructures and so on, but what what is your like picture and how how do you see it right now uh, compared to what you read in the news? Sure, it's a great question, Michael, and um, I I think it's um, you know I I often compare the dark kitchen or the virtual kitchens uh, that we're currently living in at the moment um, to what was happening with the casual dining uh, restaurant sector about 10 years ago when it was reaching its uh, saturation point and there was a real uh, body of uh, activity with a lot of uh, investors and um, uh, a lot of large uh, groups internationally pumping money into the expansion of casual dining restaurants. Uh, and, and it was great. Ten years ago, everybody wanted a casual dining restaurant um, brand and expansion and sites in, in lucrative areas. However, a lot of operators failed to see the demographic change of their customer type. 
um, evolve extremely quickly over a period of years. Um, and that ultimately led to the death of uh, the casual dining sector. Um, I think that's quite harsh the way I put it. I wouldn't say the death of the casual dining restaurant, uh, but I would certainly say um, the reduction of, of a lot of these operators. And and that's exactly what you pointed out, Michael. Um, you know, every day we're waking up to the news um, of a lot of people made redundant. Um, there's been a lot of news, particularly over the past few days, of a very well-known um, uh, restaurant operator who's, who's shutting down uh, hundreds of their uh, restaurants. It's a sign of the times. Um, it's the, the customer type is different. The, the demand is different. And I feel that with the inevitable uh, choice that people will have um, of working from home and the uh, innovation of technology that will allow for this, the dark kitchens and delivery businesses well placed to cater for it. But there is a big but that it may fall victim to what happened to the casual dining sector, where a lot of virtual brands and a lot of dark kitchens will appear and compete for a very uh, small market share in comparison to uh, the restaurant uh, sector. And ultimately, um, it will reach saturation point and only the toughest uh, will survive and only those ones that offer a very bespoke service and uh, product offering uh, will survive. It's quite interesting you're taking the, the dark kitchen angle on it because a lot of people would think, and that's definitely also the uh, the noise uh, that goes on in the background, is that you know the, the, there's some great stories about ghost kitchens being launched and aggressive rollouts, and you know uh, there's even you know you can see suddenly there's a real attraction for you know very experienced operator, even casual dining operators that goes into these dark kitchens and start operating and trying to invent their version of this. Uh, but again, as you say, uh, with my humble experience of this as well, this is a very different model to operate and you are looking at some very different numbers than you know normally if you were 100% in control of the uh, the uh, the process. But let's come back to the the, the dynamics of it. But again, dark kitchen is definitely, as you say, it's it's a hot topic right now, and there's opportunities out there. Are you seeing that you know the the more you know what you call them experienced, the, the 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 casual dining brands now moving into these kitchens as well as part of their survival strategy, or are, is it new brands that's popping up that we never heard about before, entrepreneurial brands? Yeah, sure. Absolutely, Michael. And I think, you know, there's a mix of the both. Um, you know, I think uh, those restaurateurs um, and, and companies which have in excess of, of, of 15 sites plus, um, you know, will have no choice uh, but to innovate and use their existing kitchens and premises to offer uh, delivery or click on collect uh, services. Um, essentially, that is the only way they're going to be able to sustain or recoup some of their costs, which they're in, 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 uh, they've inherited through having uh, high street locations. But also those chains, um, they do have great departments within them that have 
got the expertise to certainly put together uh, very good menus to really put some fantastic marketing behind it and, and got the contacts within the industry to push their product. And you can see that happening certainly over the past six weeks uh, with your mainstream uh, operators now offering uh, delivery services. Um, if you order directly through the website uh, in and around the M25. So, you know, that there is a real direct um, business to customer interaction, removing the aggregators um, out of the equation. Uh, but on the back of it, um, you've got the entrepreneurs, absolutely, who are now coming up with multiple brands operating out of single site kitchens. Um, so, you know, you've got companies out there who specialized in in burgers uh, in, in central London locations, all of a sudden, they're now coming out with chicken brands, they're coming out with seafood brands, um, again, offering delivery or click and collect. So there is definitely going to be a, a, a huge uh, entrepreneurial approach to this. We saw the um, resurgence of uh, street food over the past sort of um, uh, five to eight years, um, very much a, a staple in, in high, high street locations uh, and markets in London, and certainly across the UK. Um, and I feel that that's certainly going to be quite uh, the same story when it comes to uh, Ghost Kitchen and uh, innovation when it's uh, to branding. So a lot of those uh, street food operators will inevitably um, will be looking at uh, you know, some sites they can, uh, commercial sites which they can operate out of, and they will simply take their street food business model and certainly innovate uh, as a delivery concept, even though the time will come that street food, street food operators will be allowed to operate fully and with no restrictions in the coming months. But as a secondary fail-safe option, yes, I can see a lot of entrepreneurs jumping on the delivery side. So they've got a protection if, uh, you know, if in the future we do have another scenario that we're currently living in. And then it is super interesting as there has been, you know, uh, the, the, this, you know, almost collapse going on on the high street. You see the, you know, the, the savvy operators and the entrepreneurs seizing this opportunity. But it's a very interesting thing you said, but there's actually in danger for that very quickly that even this market can be oversaturated with, with, with uh, operators and brands in a way. And then you also said something that was really interesting, um, which that actually ties very neatly together that your brand actually have to stand out because I guess there's still in, instead of how I read the market, there's still a lot of, you know, you know, brand, should I trust what I get from that brand? Because we are now in a situation where tr trust is always important, but now we're talking the bottom of the master hierarchy, you know, money short, physi physiological and mental health is under threat, you know, so you're in your bottom of Maslow. So trust becomes very important. So your ability to build that trust um, when you're just an online brand, I guess that's a massive challenge. Uh, if you don't, you know, if you have had had some high street like Wagamama, you'll probably be able to have some equity, brand equity. But if you don't have that, it's, it's really a, a really some amazing skills in marketing you need to have to get those orders rolling, I guess, to build that confidence within people. 
Absolutely, Michael. And I think trust is going to be a huge um, part of uh, of a business's success, you know, moving forward. Um, you know, you highlighted the bigger, the big boys on the high street. Uh, they've got the resource and certainly the, the systems and the processes in place uh, to show their customers that, you know, they'll be making enhanced uh, uh, safety measures, cleaning procedures, and so on. Um, I think the smaller operators um, can equally be good as well. And I think, you know, this this time will certainly show, um, you know, who are the strongest, who can really adapt um, into their business and bring on uh, measures that will build trust for their customers. And I think there is also going to be a certain exposure of one's business uh, for the customer. So I feel that a lot of food businesses, you know, have always operated uh, behind uh, closed doors, particularly for restaurants and and, and uh, dark kitchens. But in terms to build trust, um, I think there'll be a lot of uh, exposure, certainly marketing, um, a lot of focus in the actual preparation of the food and uh, the kitchens on how they operate. So whether that's done through social media, whether that's done through some kind of special um, uh, invitation, uh, for operators to really um, showcase their business to their local customers um, and, and further afield, I think that will be quite beneficial. And if certainly if the operator is operating, um, you know, within within the parameters that they should be as a food business here in the UK, um, then they've got nothing to hide. And I feel that that would certainly build trust not only for their business, but their customers will feel more relaxed and the greater benefit will be for all of us um, that work in hospitality, uh, where the where the population would feel that yes, you know, certainly one sector of, of society or business um, is is really pushing, uh, placing the standards, and we can actually see that happening in aviation, uh, which is very you know secondary to uh, to hospitality, in the way they're operating and how they've certainly been sort of adapting their safety measures over the past six weeks or so to in preparation to to ensure that their customers feel um, 100% secure when they're flying with them. So I feel that hospitality will, will have to follow suit. And when you talk about, you know, um, ghost kitchens, I guess, in, 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 as I have picked up, and, and this is my view as well, have really also got, you know, there's some very good operators in there. Some people are really set high standard, but also there's been some, you know, you know, people in between that hasn't done a great job and there's been a lot of, you know, you know, distrust towards the third party aggregators and and as you know, we can come back to the third party aggregator in a second. There's an interesting conversation going on with that as well. Do you see that, you know, the market has now become more professional because of these more professional organization actually now have entered the space with the their head office team and so on. So the standards are slowly becoming better when you look at it from a consumer point of view as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's one of the USPs that these aggregators had. They didn't have them in the initial stages. I certainly do remember the uh, the junior days of Deliveroo and uh, Uber Eats and Just Eat. And they were nowhere near to the level of, of professionalism they are at the moment. However, um, you know, they are not food operators and they you know are simple simply app developers and 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 IT businesses so they fundamentally 
you know, I know this is a personal view of mine. They don't fundamentally understand um, the, the nuts and bolts of, of a food uh, business. Um, that said, over the years, they, they have invested heavily um, into bringing in, in, in people that can understand that business. However, I feel that, you know, that they made some good changes um, in terms of only adapting, uh, for example, bringing on uh, new business into their platforms that only have an FSA rating of five star and, and that's it. Um, but again, all of that was on pressure from the media and people making a lot of complaints that, you know, these aggregators were simply just after their commission and not really looking out for um, FSA ratings. At the moment, yes, um, you know, they, they have really tightened their belts and who comes onto the platform and how they are presented on the platform, everything from uh, the, the health and safety, hygiene to the product offering and, and so on and so forth. Uh, however, they still operate in a very um, in a very different manner. You know, a lot of you know all three of the aggregators um, have uh, very much uh, self-employed drivers, uh, of which it's um, as as um, uh, most of your listeners and you probably understand, uh, Michael, that you know to manage a self-employed person is extremely difficult compared to having an, an employee. And that's something which I feel uh, would need to change moving forward. And, you know, it was kind of touched on um, last year uh, by the media of, of the rights of these drivers of the gig economy. You know, there was, uh, you know, no holiday pay, no sick pay and all the rest of it. I feel that, you know, for them to portray an even more professional image, particularly when it comes to health and safety and food hygiene, I, I feel that the aggregators need to take on uh, more responsibility when looking after their, uh, their self-employed drivers, for sure. And I think you will uh, automatically, you know, see that as, you know, the, the world's going to be different now and, and, and there's going to be the government needs to interfere more with employment and, you know, rules. I think that's going to be tightened up. But an interesting take on this is like you see these, you know, you heard you heard rumors under the pandemic or just recently, a month ago, that Deliveroo was in trouble if they couldn't get the money from Amazon released. And you see they moved out in Germany. You see all these movements around these platforms. And this morning, or was it yesterday, I read that, uh, you know, uh, Grubhub, uh, Just Eat and the Takeaway group in Holland are talking about a massive global merger. And in my world, merger and acquisition only happens when your growth curve goes flat. That's when when you, you can't grow organic yourself anymore. The only way you can grow organic is by joining forces and cut, you know, costs because of, shared shared uh, functions that can be actually utilized and distributed better through the organization uh, what do you think that's going to mean to the to the industry because they already you know take some quite significant you know fees so the fees cannot go up anymore if they want to make money so if they're now starting to merge these businesses what is that going to mean for the industry and for the for the operator yeah, absolutely, Michael. It's it's a fantastic question, and it's something which um is 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 been bubbling away, uh, when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. Um, you know, takeaway.com, 
uh, and uh, the other one is Delivery Hero. You know, the huge machines that are just swallowing up uh, brands like uh, Uber Eats and Just Eat and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think what's going to happen is just, you know, it's, uh, this whole globalization of, uh, of delivery brands um, under one parent uh, umbrella and we can see that in other sectors um, around the world um, you know you think of for example a streaming service and straight away you think of Netflix um, essentially you know they they've just capitalized that internationally um, so when you want to look at alternative streaming services there are some but not as big as Netflix. And I feel that that's exactly what's going to happen with these aggregators. They're just going to fall onto one under one umbrella. The benefit being is going to be for the end consumer. Uh, they're going to have greater accessibility. They're going to have greater choice. Uh, the prices are going to be highly competitive. But the loser on this will be your food businesses and operators. However, as independent businesses and uh, as as operators, they still have that power to come together and really not join the bandwagon as such and, and, and signing up to it. And that's something that I have seen happening over the past few years. And, you know, I certainly, of course, you know, working with my clients, I, I reach out to the aggregators and that's that's the natural way for a lot of businesses. However, there are some other alternatives that are coming onto the market that are offering much better fees, much more, uh, much less uh, competition uh, for them to be hosted. Um, and I feel that that's probably a better way of, of going down that route. Um, and I feel that certainly the long term future with these mergers um, and the type of product offering on the platforms will be of a certain level. I feel that they, they're they not going to offer um, something perhaps uh, which is um, a much more uh, higher quality food item or certainly from a bespoke restaurant. They're also going to certainly target certain operators. So I feel that's where, you know, essentially where we are with these mergers. Um, personally, I feel it's a real shame um, that it's going down this route, but we do live in a a, a, a capitalist world and that's essentially uh, what's going to happen. And maybe it's a sign that they can't make it work. They, they, they don't really have a model if they're not they're not popped up by heavy investment money because it was a bit like a dream everybody saw. And now we are we are past, you know, the dream stage. Now results has to be turned out and and even I'm surprised that they can't make it work but i guess it well it's like anything if you have very heavy costs to get your product keep moving and innovating and uh, and you know they can't charge i would say you can't charge the operator more they already charging way too high fees and you see now the savvy operators looking exactly where you are the options there is out there either to do you know do it yourself with you know technology providers offering the technology to facilitate that or just uh, do a minimal, minimal uh, trade on these platforms when they normally cannot attract people to their, their restaurants. Because if you start looking at the, the 30%, let's call it that, and break that down, if you had to use that cost on your own team, it starts to be viable now to have your own delivery team. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And it was my original point which I raised, uh, which was that the market is becoming saturated. And at the end of the day, um, you know, when it comes to mergers and acquisitions behind all of this, 
um, are investors and all they're looking for is their return on investment. Um, they look at the numbers, they see the data, they analyze it, and that's essentially what uh, the, the objective is. And and it's unfortunately, it's going to hurt uh, the middlemen and middle being, men being um, uh, the, the, opera, the food operators. And I think, you know, certainly, um, you know, moving forward, um, you know, it's got to be treaded very carefully. My original point of the, the casual dining sector, when there were huge angel investors and, and uh, you know, a lot of people uh, putting in a lot of money um, into the expansion of these chain uh, chained uh, restaurants. We can uh, talk about Carluccio's as an example because it's uh, essentially no longer here anymore. You know they, they had huge amounts of cash uh, pumped in uh, at the height of the uh, of the noughties. Um and then subsequently, you know, when just a small little blip. Um, uh, occurred, which was uh, three months of no cash flow uh, this year, and, and and the whole business went into administration. And it's it's fair to say that you know did those original investors receive a return on the investment? Probably not. It suited them at that particular time of or in the period. And it's the same with um, acquisitions right now when it comes to uh, the aggregators. You know, there's the huge talk um, of um, uh, Amazon, you know, injecting cash into delivery and whether that was going to monopolize the UK delivery market and so on and so forth. Now, you know, I, I quite rightly that needs to be investigated and where it goes on from here. But ultimately what's gonna happen is is just gonna be a very cannibalistic approach to the high street, unfortunately, which is you know suffering um, at the moment through other pressures, uh, and I just feel that you know that there's got to be some breathing space um, uh, away from um, uh, from these uh, mergers. And it's interesting if you 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 go back and talk a bit about because we have before talked about Ghost Kitchen and and there's um and and you came up with a really good point at one point you said to me. To really make a ghost kitchen or dark kitchen work, you cannot just do one brand and do that well. You actually need multiple brands. And you see the really sappy operator, they go in with seven or eight brands. They have like a portfolio, chicken brand, uh, Asian brand, and a pizza brand, and then they develop that. So they actually, you almost need to develop so many different brands within the same kitchen. So, so what is there like a golden rule for, you know, that this is a good starting point. You already always have to start with something, but it's not just taking your existing concept and just an, if you don't have a massive marketing machine like Wakamama and McDonald's. I know that's a very different business, but just the, the average brand, you almost need to think about sub-brands within that kitchen, I guess. Yes, no, you're very right, Michael. Um, you know the 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 explosion of brands is it's uh, really interesting because you know let, let's give I'll give you an example. If you're sitting in a in a in your apartment in Shoreditch in East London, you open up one of these apps and you're just going to have so much choice of food. It will be absolutely unbelievable, and you could very much eat a different meal every day of the month and and not get bored uh, but then you come out to the suburbs or you come out to um, small towns or cities um, outside of london and it's a very different story you've got them big boys your mcdonald's your kfc uh your nando's and you know all those guys but then you've then got the bottom end you've just got your 
kebab shops and you've got your pizza delivery and and your Chinese and that's about it. So yes, I think you know the offering of sub brands is very paramount, particularly outside of London. And certainly, um, uh, everybody's tastes are different. So, you know, if you took look at your typical household, you, whether you've got a young couple living by themselves or you've got a family with young children or a family with uh, multiple uh, teenagers, um, or you've got friends coming around, you know, everybody wants something that much more different. And also the fact that, you know, certainly in the times that we're living at the moment, you know, a lot of people have been exposed to uh, a lot of culture on social media, a lot of culture through their own uh, traveling through holidays. So a lot of people have become aware of many different tastes and many different uh, foods that um, are on offer. So because of that, I think the ones that are successful at the moment and the ones that will be successful in the future is offering multiple brands under essentially under one umbrella or one kitchen. Um, It's an execution that you know, it takes time to develop and it's it's extremely difficult. However, if you get the recipe right, you know, the, the rewards can be extremely great. Um, but again, it comes down to the innovation of the uh, business owner and the entrepreneur. Um, and I think any time that's going to be tested is certainly the time that we're living in at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to make a, a brand that stands out. That's really hard because, again, you know, people very quickly look through, I believe, especially... I think the this will this period of time will make the consumer even more savvy, as I say, because they're gonna be they would have time now to reflect on a lot of things. And I think like a lot of food brands really need to figure out what is this new consumer that comes out on the other side because we we have had more than, you know, sixty-six days of new habits, you know. A lot of cooking ourselves, connection with food again in a different way. You know, normally we consume the more than I think it's 35% of our food or 33% of our food outside the home that has definitely gone down drastically. And that means that, you know, a lot of people probably also have stopped eating things they shouldn't have eaten before. They've been better uh, health. And I think they will not just turn back to the old consumer. There will be a lot of things brands need to think about to make sure, especially when you, you don't have a shop front so you can show who you are. You really need to think that through the things you just said and make sure you actually live, live those values as as we go forward. I think that's going to be even, maybe not yet, but as well, but definitely be a, a tipping point in that direction. Um, and it's interesting you say you need a number of brands to make that happen. So this is not a, a quick, quick rich scheme. That's what you're saying. It's not like you can just open a, yeah, your, 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 your kitchen and then the money rolls in when you turn on the, 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 the tablet. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, you know, there's look, you know, there's always going to be, you know, um, you know, cowboys out there who want to make a quick buck. Um, you know, I over the past few months, I've heard of all kinds of horror stories where people have been operating delivery services out of their uh, out of their front room um, and uh, and uh, cooking up, you know, vast pots of food and, and sending them out um, through um, uh, delivery 
uh, online deliveries, you know, with no uh, health and safety or FSA guidelines or, or any kind of um, inspections. So, yes, um, you're always going to get people that want to make a quick buck and, you know, they're, they're going to do this. However, um, you know, they're just going to be short lived. You know, the overall approach on this, uh, Michael, will be um, investment into your brand, um, uh, reinvesting the profits that you make to market your business bigger and better um and i think if you do if you do that right you know your customers will stand by you because one thing about the uk is uh, we are very loyal um as as customers we do like certain brands and we do stick through uh to them through even through tough times so yes um i feel that it will you know it will level out um but i, I certainly feel that uh the 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 marketing aspect and building the brand is is one of the biggest challenges, certainly for ghost kitchens. Uh, but there are some very good uh, operators out there at the moment who run virtual brands. And on the face of it, if you were to look at them and taste the food, you would be surprised that they don't have a, a premises on a high street. Um, but look, you know, it's it's um, you know it's it's what it is, and it, it's how it's going to be. So let's just see what happens in the future for sure. Yeah, and again, coming back to the, the you know getting quick rich scheme is as well because there's still the variable cost here, and then you have your aggregator fees. But there's a thing to hear that, which I really understood when I started really trying to understand Goat Kitchen. You're operating a number of brands because your your crossovers can be the same because it's different brands. There will be some crossovers, but your menu menu margins because some evenings or days you could have one brand really go mental. If you had a pizza brand, really go mental. You have a salad brand, you'll probably see on a Friday, Saturday, the pizza brand go mental. So again, and then other days it will be the salad concept. But again, the, the margin game here is so important that you really understand your numbers and run your numbers all the time, because I guess there's not much wiggle room here because there's still rent to be paid, which is, is still, if we talk London or urban places, it's still quite high. You know, as a, the, even if you go into a ghost kitchen, being, being, being in one myself, know that these kitchen per square meters are not cheap. Yeah, no, absolutely, Michael. And you've hit the nail on the head there, you know, because it all comes down to cost, um, you know, to operate, a, a ghost kitchen or a delivery business successfully um, comes down to your numbers, especially when you're aggre- when you're relying on your aggregators and the aggregators themselves can take anything up to thirty five percent of the value of your meal. You're you're left with a very little maneuver. So yeah, your cost of goods needs to be spot on and that inevitably comes down to your two biggest variables which is your um, purchase of your uh, uh, ingredients and how you manage your labor um and you know you know ingredients you can negotiate you can speak to suppliers and sourcing and local and all the rest of it that's quite straightforward uh however it's managing labor which is extremely key um and this comes down to some real good training um and and ensuring you've got the right people and the right skill level in your kitchen so inevitably um you know bringing someone to work in a in a ghost kitchen essentially you're recruiting an octopus you know someone who's got eight arms and who can flip uh, between different orders and different brands which is completely unheard of if you talk to a chef uh, from a normal restaurant um but i think again that's something which people would need to adapt um certainly when it comes to recruitment 
um, that they, they would need to be really open and understand that the type of people that they're bringing into their business is people that can multitask and, and have got multi ways of thinking who can flip between brands. That's the only way they're going to survive, um, because essentially, if you've got a, a ghost kitchen and, you know, you've got six different brands, you're not going to have six different chefs. Um, it's, you know, you're probably going to end up having three stroke four chefs who can then each do two or three brands each and you probably push it a little bit more to maximize uh, on your labor control but yes um, inevitably that's that's where it sits at the moment yeah and one of the interesting things you told me about once was there's actually operators out there that specialize in you know taking concepts of like the franchise model where they take on a concept and they run it because they are expert in running franchise concepts within the uh, the dark kitchen. And I was very surprised that actually there was franchising happening within this sector. Um, so just because I think there's a lot of people that don't know, can you just give, you know, you know, like the overview about how that works and, and how big this is in a way? Because this was what you saw with the, uh, the QSR sector as well uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, the franchising, um, it was interesting. Uh, there's been a sub-industry that's kind of popping up uh, through um, uh, virtual kitchens and franchising. So you've got your standard operators um, that, you know, they're single site or multi-site uh, operators with franchise uh, agreements with your big boys. Uh, they just operate as per normal, as you would expect. But the sub-franchising um, uh, essentially uh, means that you create... Uh, these virtual brands and uh, approach a prospective franchise partner uh, who essentially has got an A3 setup. So A3 being uh, a, a fast food operator with the capacity of frying and extraction systems. And you would approach them and you would sell them one of your franchise brands, uh, a virtual brand, and they would simply construct your meal for you and then uh, dispatch it through the aggregator and in return uh, they uh, would uh, receive uh, uh, profits as expected uh, but the franchisor uh, would receive uh, royalties for hosting um, uh, that brand and subsequent um, any other uh, franchise in, in a sense it operates like a, a typical franchise model so they'll make money on the cost of uh, goods that are supplied to the franchisee and subsequent uh, packaging and other other uh, marketing support that they give. Um, and then the franchisee subsequently pays a royalty, um, uh, just like a, an existing franchise model. So that one's been popping up, uh, certainly across Europe, and it's happening with a couple of operators in the UK. Um, and then subsequently, it's been happening in Dubai, um, it's a couple of operators out there that are following a similar suit. So that's something which, you know, potentially could open up and can be quite lucrative uh, moving forward. So that's another innovation that's kind of sort of um, uh, uh, branched off um, the whole virtual kitchen operator. And again, um, you know, it's quite cost heavy. There's a lot of uh, preparation when it comes to, you know, arranging a CPU unit, um, you know, ensuring that you've got the quite uh, correct cash flow and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of um, uh, training involved with the partners and the franchisees and so forth and so on. So it's not as easy as, as simply just signing up or developing your own kitchen brand. But that concept itself, that is something which perhaps could 
you know, offer uh, an opportunity to existing restaurateurs who have had vacant premises over the past three months, who have now uh, in a position where they've certainly got to generate additional revenue streams uh, to, to compensate for the reduction in seating capacity because of social distancing. So this could be another revenue stream. So that is something which, you know, certainly um, is something to look out for, uh, one for the future. Yeah, and I think, uh, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think, again, if you're an operator thinking about franchising your concept, it still takes the same amount of work, I guess, as it takes to franchise any other operation. It's not just a left-hand job. You really have to know your concept in and out and know it works when you hand it over to somebody else. Absolutely, hundred percent, Michael. Couldn't couldn't uh, agree with you more. Um, it's um, it's something which has to be proven, and it's something which you know you, you've got to stand by. You know, at, and as as the principality of um, of franchising is that you stand by your product and everything that's been worked towards it. And once you're in a position to to market it, yes, it would go. And I think at the moment. Um, you know, it's certainly an opportunity that needs to be looked into. And there's a couple of operators that, you know, are doing pretty well out of this. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's something which, yeah, needs to be seriously looked into. So leaving the, 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 the details of Dark Kitchen, I think we, we, we covered everything about, you know, the importance of standing out, the setup of operation, the challenges with the accurator and, and the strengths of them. And let's go in and talk a bit about uh, the future for the general industry, but we have already touched about the, where you think the, the, the whole dark kitchen. But every day right now, there is, you know, as we said in the beginning, you know, really sad news. What is your, like, your grasp of it? You spend your life in this industry and now uh, you're standing, you, we're looking at this, you know, you know, this, you know, it's just disappearing between our hands, the industry um, and the size of it. It's maybe gonna, you know, there's definitely projections in in around you know 50 percent of operators we know today is not going to exist in 12 to 18 months what is your what is your view on it all and where do you think we are and i know you don't have a crystal ball but in 12 to 18 months <laughs> yeah great question michael and you know i wish we all had a crystal ball at the moment you know because it would make our life so much easier um you look you know the landscape is is permanently changed you know that is for sure um, you know, in the 25 years that I've been in, in hospitality and, and experienced hospitality in many countries around the world, um, you know, I've done everything and anything that can be done uh, to do with uh, this business. Uh, this is something which is, um, yeah, it's, it's taken everybody uh, back uh, two steps. Uh, but I'm always the optimist and I feel my principal belief is and the reason why I entered uh, hospitality is the, is the simple fact that people um, like to eat and people would always want to be fed and they like the experience of, of hospitality. And I don't think that will ever change. You know, we, we are in a, in a, living in a world where population is only, is only going one way. Uh, which is uh, increase of population and the demands are going to be there to feed people. Um, I feel that within the next six months, uh, life will be pretty much um, as normal as can be. Um, I think COVID-19 will be something which will be written in history. And it's something that we would have to live with until that time comes in the future where um, uh, vaccines are in, in mass production. 
However, you know, there are going to be some serious casualties um, of this. And, and I think, um, you know, this year has just been the, the final nail in the coffin. There was a lot of businesses uh, that were destined to, to be mothballed, um, you know, and that, that can be seen already that, you know, they literally had their time and they were just sort of plodding along. Um, the future, uh, Michael, I feel that it's just simply, you know, going to be bigger and better um, than it's ever been. I think there's going to be a big bounce back. I think there's going to be a real uh, a, a, a support by the general public, not only in this country, but internationally. And we can see this happening in countries that have come out of their complete lockdown, places like China, uh, Italy, Spain, New Zealand, uh, South Korea. They've all demonstrated um, that their customers have been very supportive and very much engaging with restaurant operators and, and takeaway and grab and go. And certainly with QSR as well. And you can see that at the moment with the, with the likes of McDonald's that opened up you know, a few weeks ago, there were, there were huge queues that were forming uh, for their um, services. And that's not because of people have missed out a takeaway or something. Takeaways were always available during lockdown. Uh, but I, I feel that, you know, people, you know, just want the sense of normality. So I think, yes, there's going to be a lot of doom and gloom and there are going to be a lot more casualties. And unfortunately, a lot, many people are going to be losing their jobs. Uh, but it's the it's the it's the ones which um, really plan for the future and really see this as an opportunity um, as much as restaurants went through the similar thing, um, albeit not not this dramatic, back in 2007 and eight when we had the last financial crisis, there was a lot of um, operators that, you know, went pop. Uh, I, I unfortunately at that time lost a, a franchise business of mine. So, yes, I've been at the receiving end of losing a business and going into administration. However, you know, I saw um, some huge uh, benefits, um, you know, in the years after that, where the economies, you know, bounced back and there was there was a lot of surgence in business. So I feel that it can only go one way, which is people will always want to eat and people will always want to have an experience. And that's just not going to stop. And it just takes uh, people um, like ourselves and, and the, the great people that still work in hospitality to drive that message forward. Yeah, and I think there's no more than ever as we reopen. You're right. Then there's a, there's a need for hope and optimism as well. And and I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think just the speed of it, I think that's the shocking because this was already coming. Uh, because I, I, you know, if you look at some of the operators fail, not saying everyone, but some of them failing, I would say if we're talking about standing out and having a unique brand and, you know, you know, having having the right story behind and wanted to do, they, they were just a bit stuck in time. They, they, they lost their ways and uh, they were just waiting for the slow death. And now they're getting it really, really fast, some of them. And I'm not including everyone, but there's definitely some that was up for, for grabs in my world and just waiting on on the uh, to to leave anyway but again you know if you think about the the individual you know person working in the sector this is a this is probably the one i feel for the most and the small operator this is really tough because it's there's going to be a period where it's going to be very difficult to 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 find new work and uh, hopefully we're not going to use lose too much of our great talent as well because they uh, We'll see. I think we've seen again that people in hospitality, when we get the knife on the throat, we can really innovate on a level. 
And we just have to keep remembering this afterwards. That's one of the things I want to keep on saying to people. Remember how fast you could innovate when you were a bit under pressure and keep on having that innovation because like that's that's how you win in the long long run. So in the end of the podcast, yes, I always ask the guests to give like three top advice right now where we are in the world. So if you were giving advice to your your clients right now, what would be the uh, the three top advice they should follow? Sure. Uh, okay. Right. So top three um, that I would advise my clients. Um, in fact, that's something which I've been doing anyway uh, with my clients in, in recent times. Uh, first one would be the adaptation in technology. Um, I can never uh, under understate that uh, enough. It's, um, it's something which, yes, technology has been um, the forefront of many innovations in many sectors around the world and, and the times we're living in. But in hospitality, I think naturally we're just shy away from technology you know we just kind of put a stop to till systems and pdq machines and that's about it and the old tablet here and there but i feel that the actual adaptation of technology uh, first and foremost you know there's some really good stuff out there that can really help business owners uh take the next uh, a step in in maximizing their uh, efficiency and and thus maximizing their profitability uh number two uh, would be um, innovation of food offering. Um, you know, that one, I think, you know, is is a clear example, quite rightly, Michael, what you touched on just now. You know, the, the businesses that have gone uh, into administration have fallen away quite drastically over the past few months. And the ones which are going to uh, fall, unfortunately, in the coming months um, have simply not innovated their food offering. You know, they're, they're, they're simply living in an era where um, the businesses have been led by a certain generation, and that's the black and white truth. So I feel to innovate um, in food is absolutely paramount. Um, I can't stress that enough. And I think at the moment, you know, certainly reaching out to your uh, millennials, to your generation Z and your generation X is, 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 is really, really, really important. You know, those are the customers that probably know a lot more about food and ingredients than we probably knew a generation ago. So I think that's definitely number two. And number three, um, certainly showcasing your hygiene and your health and safety measures. And I think that's very important. Um, you know, everyone's been hidden under this um, uh, background of, you know, FSA ratings and scores on the door, you know, which is absolutely important. And that's the way it should be. Um, and very proud to display, you know, their, their four star, five star rating on their doors. However, absolutely showcasing, you know, further measures, um, showcasing, you know, the, the, the auditing practices, uh, inviting people into their kitchens, really making them understand exactly how a hospitality business runs, I think is a top, is my number three. And I think especially in the in the climate that we're living in and the expectation of food operators in the future, I think that's something that, you know, food business operators need to really start looking into. And that's my top three, Michael. Very good advice. And especially, um, you know, uh, I think it's the combination of these three things that's very important and balancing that uh, because there's a lot of people either, you know, I've seen some operators really focusing on one of those. It's again, the balance you, you strike between those uh, those three right now. And, and, and of course, balance is hard when you're sailing into a big, big wave in principle. 
but yeah, I think they were great, great, uh, great advice there. And there was a lot of knockage during the, the conversation as well. So Jazz, thank you so much for, for your time and your in-depth uh, knowledge sharing on the, the, the dark kitchen and the delivery model. I'm sure that there's some people out there that really have got some, some great insights there uh, about, about how to, to move on from here. Thank you, Michael, for hosting me. It's been a real pleasure in, in, in uh, sharing this conversation with you. And um, uh, yeah, I just wish everybody the best of luck. And um, yeah, just keep thinking forward. You too. Just stay, uh, stay safe and power and energy to you as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Jess. So interesting to understand more about Dark Kitchen and how successful operating them. The core learning here is it's not a walk in the park. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share it with people you think would benefit from it, rate, and also let us know what you think. Thanks to VitaMojo for making it possible. If you'd like to know more about VitaMojo, you can find them on software.vitamojo.com or contact them directly at nick.leadle at vitamojo.com. Keep on innovating.